you're paying attention, you may wonder, well, first, I, I apologize for jumping, a, jumping ahead in the story a little bit with uh, the Advent reading from Matthew. When Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt from Herod, and uh, you may be wondering if you've looked and you've seen, or now you've seen, that what does Joseph and Mary fleeing and running away to Egypt, uh, the book of Revelation 21, uh, have to do with Christmas? What I want to talk about is, uh, is kind of interesting. You know, here we are a week away from Christmas, and I wanted to bring this up because a lot of times we forget how Jesus started his life. You know, many of us don't realize, uh, maybe we've forgotten, that, that Jesus actually kind of started his life as a refugee. That because Herod wanted to kill him, because he had heard that a, a new king had been born, that he killed all of these babies around the area where Jesus was born, and that to save his very life, his parents under duress had to flee to Egypt. You know, fleeing to another country because of an unstable political situation for asylum. And I thought about this idea, and I was thinking about Jesus, and, and, and I wonder, you know, what did he consider home? You know, for many of us, what is home? You know, I've learned living abroad now for a little while that that's sort of a tricky question to ask people, or the question even, where are you from, is sort of a tricky question. And, and home is another one of those where, how do we answer that question? Well, I live here. For me personally, I sort of have three answers. You know, I was born in California. I, I live here in Zurich now, and, but most recently I lived in Denver. So it's maybe one of those three. But then I'm actually going home tomorrow to a completely different place to see my parents because they no longer live in the place where I was born. So what in the world is home? You know, what is it that makes us think about home? Maybe it's being around family. Maybe family makes you think about home. Maybe it's the childhood home you grew up in. You know, maybe it's the same town or, or, or place or maybe just going back to the same country. Where, where people speak your mother tongue and you don't have to think all the time. You know, maybe it's, it's, it's the things that come with it. Maybe it's security. Maybe it's the ability to rest. You know, I've moved so much in my life, I think that for me, home just means being able to rest. One of the reasons I love going to my parents' house, among many, is that my mom, ever since I left the house, now she just sort of takes care of things, you know? It's... Oh, hey, good morning. I just made some blueberry muffins, you know. Wonderful. What is it that makes you think of home? Maybe it's just the simplicity of when you were a child and it brings up joyful memories. Even if your family was in turmoil, there was always those memories that just sort of made you think fondly of a few times. And, and, and what's funny is even in Christmas songs we hear it, Right? I'll be home for Christmas. There's no place like home for the holidays. You know, many of us in in the coming days and weeks will travel, use resources to go home or to go to a home so that we have this feeling. And so with that in mind, uh, I want to read the text for tonight. And um, this is, well... I'm going to try to get through this evening without getting too emotional because this is just so good. Uh, So we're going to read Revelation chapter 21 in the first eight verses. Uh, 
so please either follow along on the screen in your Bible, however you like. And this is John writing this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to him who is thirsty, I will give water to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, we kind of have this passage that's beautiful, beautiful, wonderful, great, and then there's this last verse that's sort of, oh, and hey, by the way, um, this wonderful, beautiful time is going to be really bad for some people. And so I, I want to go through the verses that I usually do and then sort of just talk about the big picture for Christmas and for Advent. So John sees this vision. And if you didn't know much of Revelation, the book of Revelation is a vision that John sees towards the end of his life. And it's a vision that God gives him regarding things that will happen towards the end of days. And, and he's quoting, actually, parts of the Old Testament when he talks about this in Isaiah. And he's saying that by quoting parts of Isaiah and, and knowing what we know about the New Testament, that these promises of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem are not just for Israel anymore, as they were with Isaiah the prophet, but they're for all the Gentiles, all of those who turn to Christ. And can I just say, as, as sort of a parenthetical side note, as someone who reads the Bible and sort of studies it a lot, I love that the Bible ends on something that can't really be, be proven, that something must be taken on faith, that the Bible ends with this big, grand vision, and, and it's not a narrative, or it's not direction, it's not, oh, and hey, by the way, here's how you should organize a church service, and here's how you should live your life by these ten rules, and it just sort of ends with this beautiful, grand vision that, that believers must take on faith. I think it's just such a beautiful picture of what God asks us to do. And, and what's funny is we think of heaven as maybe in the clouds, you know, or maybe it's, it's where God lives, and, and, and we're not really sure how to interpret it. And even the word heaven sort of has a lot of meanings. You know, in some instances when it talks about the heavens or the heaven, it just talks about the sky and the unknown in Scripture. In some, like this one, it actually is talking about a final resting place for God and man. There's so much we don't necessarily know, but what we do know here is that John is sharing a vision he had of something amazing. That all things will be made new, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And just 
one more little detail. When it says there will be no sea, uh, in, in the Jewish world and in the ancient world, the sea actually represented sort of a separation and, and, and this idea of wild and separation and, and you know, being divided from God. And so when it says there's no sea, it's not that there's not going to be any water in heaven, just as a, another side note. I once had someone ask me that, you know, is there going to be no, no ocean in heaven? I really like the ocean. And I said, no, I'm pretty sure the new, the new earth will probably have some water. It'll probably be really pretty. Uh, what it's talking about here is that the, the sea, if you read through Old Testament imagery and in biblical literature, seas represent darkness and expansion and separation from God. And in verse 2, John gives an image that to him is maybe the best one he can think of. This new heaven and this new earth, this, this culmination of all things is going to be like a bride dressed beautifully for her husband. And anyone who's been to a wedding, which obviously many of us have, knows that it is just a joyful occasion. The, the, as, as in the U.S., I don't know what traditions are, but in, in, in the U.S. and in a lot of Western weddings, you know, the, the bride is sort of hidden and hidden. And then at the last moment, everyone sort of stands up and the doors open and there's a procession of this girl, this young woman, this, this person just dressed beautifully as, as presenting as a gift to this person to start their life together. You know, people are holding back tears. People are fighting to take pictures of this person. Recently, I was just at a wedding where they actually asked people, they said, hey, we have a professional photographer. Please don't hold up cell phones and iPads to take pictures because we don't want our nice pictures being filled with everyone's cell phones in them, you know? So please don't take pictures of the bride. We'll take pictures. And it's this beautiful time. I confess, I've even done a couple of wedding ceremonies, and I, even as a pastor, I'm standing up there, and I'm holding back tears because you just see the joy, and you feel the joy. People travel from all over the world to be together. And this is the analogy John uses. That, that this is, think about the most joyful celebration you can. And, th- and this is the best I can do for what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. And he goes on again in verse 3 to list out promises from the Old Testament. He says, I, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God will be their God. You know, this is a promise God makes to the people through Moses way long ago. He says, if you follow me, if you choose the, to follow my commandments, I will be your God and you will be my people. And thousands of years ago, God made this promise, and we see through the vision of John that he intends to fulfill this promise. And actually in Deuteronomy 30, when he makes this promise, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, I love the phrasing, he says, this is not hard. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, he says, this is not difficult for you to do. You can do this. Follow me. And here in John's vision, we see the culmination. If we do this for the people who do this and who choose to follow God, he will dwell among them. We see God's promises being fulfilled in this vision. And then in verse 4, we get the practical application. What's the big deal? What's the big deal about God coming to live with us? I thought God was all around us, you know? What, what's, the, what's the difference with the new heaven and the new earth? In verse 4, is it? Things are going to get better. 
things are going to get a lot better. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. No more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You know, it's amazing. Many people you talk to, one of their biggest arguments about Christianity, about God, is that simple problem of evil. The problem of sin. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, I look at this passage, I see it says the old order of things has passed away. I I, want to clarify what I think it's talking about. The old order of things is what we as people actually did, right? We brought sin into the world, and therefore, this is why things have fallen apart. This is why there's evil. It's because human beings chose not to follow God, because human beings chose and said that we know better than God. You know, you look at the world, and and we see around the world right now that things need to be made new. And the only time that things were good, and the only time that things were really, truly good, was way, 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 way back when in the Garden of Eden. When God dwelled among Adam and Eve. And you remember the story, after Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit of the tree of good and evil, they... They all of a sudden felt shame. They all of a sudden felt guilt. And they tried to hide from God. And because it was just so normal that they were living among with God that they thought they could actually hide from them. See, what we forget is that God will actually conquer all of this. See, many of us have sort of resigned ourselves to just sort of trying to live life amidst evil, trying to just do our best to get over the hard things and just figure it out. We forget that God not only promises that he will conquer these things, but that through Jesus Christ, he already has. That Jesus, through the cross and through his resurrection, conquered sin and shame and gave us the ability to do the same. And in verse 5, God says, listen, the reason you can know The reason you can know that there will be no more crying and no more pain and no more suffering is because I will make all things new. And we know that when God makes something, it is not broken. It is not faulted. It is good. At the end of creation, what does it say? That God stepped back and looked at everything and said, that is good. This is right. And so we can trust, I believe that we can trust that when God makes all things new again, whenever that day comes, that it will be good, that it will be glorious. And what's funny to me that people try to blame God. They say, how can God allow evil? How can God allow these things? Well, God's answer, at least from what I can perceive it would be, is I didn't ruin those things, you did. I made the Garden of Eden and I made communion and and relationship. I gave Adam Eve. I gave you each other. We were living together. Things were good. And then you decided it wasn't good enough. And so now God says at the end of all of these things, He is going to come and make all things new. He says, you can trust me in verse 6. I am the beginning and I am the end. I started it and I will finish it. And He's It's like a comfort. He says, don't worry about it. For those of you who are thirsty, I'll give you water. Your most basic human needs, I will take care of you. I will provide for you. I will give you everything you need because verse 7, we will be victorious. 
For those who believe, he says in verse 7, for he who overcomes will inherit all of this. He who overcomes, he and she, men and women who believe in Jesus Christ, who believe in the promises of God, who believe that God is the Alpha and the Omega and will make all things new, will be victorious, he says. You will inherit all of this, all the things that God has for you, all the promises of God, the goodness of the original creation. But when you think of the words, he who overcomes, it leads us to believe that there will be those who do not overcome. You know, some translations will say, to he who is victorious. Victory tells us what? That if there is a winner, there is a loser. And one of the things that we can sometimes forget in this life is that we are actually in a battle. See, we we know heaven is coming and we trust that heaven is coming, but in the meantime, and as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, there, there is this spiritual battle happening each and every day for your heart, for your soul, for your affection. And we must remember that even though God has won the battle and God will win the battle, there is still work to be done. That God is desiring for our souls to get as close to Him as they can like they were in the garden. You know, I get up here each and every week not to hear myself talk because to be honest with you, I talk to myself all day long. If you sat outside, it's true, if you sat outside my office or, or set up a recording device, you would hear some weird things. Please don't do that. I, I do this because the church has a job. We have a job. I teach to encourage and to equip us to share the good news that God has conquered and that God will conquer and that you are part of that plan. So not only will all things be made new for you in heaven and all of your pain and your suffering and your tears will be wiped from your eyes, so that you can share that same message with a person who does not know that their tears and their suffering will be gone. Because sadly, as we see in verse 8, there is a losing side to the battle. If you read through the book of Revelation, we see clearly God presents Himself as majestic, as powerful, and people still say, no, thank you. See, people love the idea of heaven, but they hate the idea of not getting there, and so they either choose not to believe it or they'll say things like some will say, well, that, you know, I think everyone probably gets to heaven, you know. And not to begrudge the Catholic Church, but then there's also the idea of purgatory, right? Well, after, you, after all of this, then you get kind of this, if you, if you didn't make it in the first time around, then you can keep trying, you know. And that may be the case. I don't know. But what I do know is there's going to come a time when there is a new heaven and there is a new earth and, and, and eternity is going to start and sin and pain and suffering will be gone. And whatever it may look like, we need to remember too, as I said, that if we believe in heaven and if we hold fast to the truth of heaven, we also must believe that there is a hell. And it's not something to scare us, it's not something to manipulate us, but it's something to keep it real for us in our minds. That we live life like it is a real thing. And your eternal salvation may be safe and secure. And if your hope is in Jesus, then you should be free then to go and tell others. And to live in a way that you are not afraid of what you might lose on this earth.
because your eternal destiny is secure. We have nothing to fear. Believing in heaven does not mean you are fearful of hell. It means you love God and you trust His promises. And there you, you go, therefore, and take that message to others who do not know that God loves them. You know, and as we talk about heaven, I just want to address a couple of things here. Because I've heard a couple of things about heaven that made me concerned. I remember one time talking with a, a youth group in the U.S., ages about 13 to 17 or 18. And the concern that kept coming up was somehow they got it in their minds that heaven would be boring. That we'd all sort of be wearing robes and be like floating around on clouds but not actually doing anything. Or that, you know, I, I, and I've shared this before with Matt and I think with you guys, you know, worship leaders saying that we're just going to sing songs all day long. Well, some of us don't particularly like singing songs that much. Or some of us don't have the best voice. I want to address this quickly because I don't think heaven's going to be boring. And if you ever wondered, I just want to point it out. Go to the next chapter in Revelation. Go to 22. We're just going to read that real quick. We're going to read the first five verses of Revelation 22. Starting in verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal. This is a description of what things are going to look like. Clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river there stood the tree of life, bearing twelve cups of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. See, there's going to be healing from the pain and the suffering. There's going to be healing. And then in verse 3, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. And they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. I like this for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons I like it is that it says two things. One, there's going to be no more curse and that we will get to serve God forever. So when you think of heaven, do not think of it as some sort of indentured servitude, as service, as manual labor. No, what he's saying is if there's no more curse, do you remember the curse for Adam and Eve? That, that Adam would have to work the land without a good harvest. There'd be thorns and thistles and dust and dirt. Imagine what it was like to take care of the garden before the fall. Imagine how beautiful and perfect and wonderful it was that our hard work will not only be paid off, but it will bring God even more glory. It will actually be joyful what we were made to do. What we were made to do was work with and serve God. Consider what it is you enjoy doing most in this world. Not the, 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 the bad things, but, but, but the real good things, the things that bring you joy when you feel total and complete joy. Imagine that feeling times like a thousand for all eternity. You know, you can, even if you might be thinking right now, oh gosh, I really like to drink wine. Maybe that won't be in heaven. No, you could plant a vineyard for God. And you could spend hundreds of years and thousands of years just trying to make the world's best wine. You can explore, you can climb mountains, you can exercise, you can run, you can write poetry, you can paint pictures, you can serve God however God has made you to be. 
And there will be no more sin and no more pain and no more distractions. If you're an artist, there won't be any art critics. I mean, just think of the joy. And you can do it for eternity. You know, this, when we think about home, this is what we're all looking for. A place where you can be you with your gifts and your abilities and you're safe. I once had a seminary professor who explained it this way, and I can't think of anything better, so this is what I say. You know, recently we've, we've been lucky enough to go to some, some people's homes for dinner who have young children. And what's great about going to these places is there's always art, right? And there's always pictures and there's always drawings. And, and, and many of you know what that's like. And maybe if you don't have children, it's a niece or a nephew or when you were a child. And, and you come home and you show your parent this thing that you're just so proud of. Right? Or you do it in Sunday school or something, and, and you're just so excited about this picture. And you look back at it 20 years later, and you think, wow, my mom was really nice. You know, she didn't tell me how bad that was. But, but, but you're so proud of it. And what, is, what, is, what does your parent do? What do they do? They say, that is so beautiful. And they put it on the wall, or they put it, you know, in the U.S., you always had, we always had those really big refrigerators, you know. And, and, and we put magnets, and you get to hang your picture from school on the fridge. He said, imagine, this is what my seminary professor once told me about heaven. He said, imagine now that God has this giant refrigerator in heaven. And you spend however long you want on a painting. And you go to God and you say, God, I made you this picture. I'm not much of an artist, but I thought I'd try it. I, I, I did my best. I painted it. And God looks at it and looks at you and said, this is beautiful. This is perfect. This is amazing. And then you say something to him like, well... You know, and I think I've shared this in here before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but then you say something like this to God. Well, I thought about making a sculpture, but I'm not really good at sculpture. I want to try it. I want to learn it, but I've never done it. And then it hits you, oh, I have the time, and I have the passion, and I have the freedom to do that. And you say, I'll be right back. And then you run off and explore the new heaven and the new earth, and you find a way to make God something even more special and even more beautiful with all you are and all you have. And you run back to the giant refrigerator to show God so that he can put it there. Heaven is going to be so great. I don't know a lot of details about it. But when I read this book, and when I read the book of Revelation, I realize that what God is saying is that he loves me, is that he has called me to this, and that I will finally be able to be the quirky, weird, in interesting, we'll say, person that he has made me to be and I will be free to worship him as he has made me to be. And, and when I think of Christmas, when I think of home, I think this is what we want. We want a feeling of safety. We want a feeling that this is where we belong. See, in the garden, way back when, before any sin and shame came into the world, Adam and Eve lived in perfect communion with God. Home is going back to that perfect relationship with God. Everything we see in this life are just glimpses of what God has promised. Think of the, the, the happiest day. Think of uh, the best day. You know, I can't help but think of, you know, my wedding day when it says like a bride adorned for her husband. And I've, I've shared this before. I mean, I cried. It wasn't just, you know, like masculine, kind of just like little drop tears. I mean, I had to do the, the wipe 
you know? And it was great that when you're getting married, you're actually not facing people because then they couldn't see how messed up my face was. And I remember thinking this was the greatest gift I could ever receive. And, and, and with all due respect to my wonderful wife, Jenna, uh, it's not. That there will be a day that when we see God and we see and understand how much He loves us, we're going to say, oh, I finally get it. I finally get what Jesus was talking about. I finally understand how much you love me. Whatever the thing that's been the best gift you've ever received in your life, it's going to be better. And the gift giver is also, and we were talking about this just before church, the gift giver is also brought so much joy. You know when you find that perfect gift for someone and you see how happy they are and you think inside yourself, wow, I'm so happy I found the right gift. Our joy will also bring God joy. And as we spend eternity with God in the new heaven and the new earth, worshiping and praising, we will not be bored, we, we will not be in sin, we will not be crying, there will be no suffering, there will be no pain. God's gift to us is our relationship with our Creator the way it was supposed to be. And I love Christmas on earth. I love celebrating this stuff on earth. But these are just glimpses. These are just tiny little slivers into what God has for us. The best, most joyful memory you might have in your entire life is a fraction of what God has planned for you in heaven. You know, one of my favorite analogies of this comes from the Chronicles of Narnia where where C.S. Lewis says that in Narnia it was always winter but never Christmas. Could you think of anything more awful? I mean, always snowy, always dark, always gray, and there's no Christmas lights, there's no Christmas cookies, there's no Christmas... It's just always winter, never Christmas. The worst. But Christmas is about God making all things new. Advent is about the birth of Jesus Christ and that we look forward to when He comes again. And when He comes again, that means we will be victorious. We will have peace. When it says peace on earth to, to, and goodwill to all men, it's not saying peace on earth. It's saying that we will finally have peace in our hearts. And there won't be something we see in justice. Like today, there's another bombing in a Christian church, and you think, that's wrong. Why does it have to be that way? It won't anymore. It just won't. The best things on earth we have are a glimpse. If you doubt... Talk to someone. Ask someone because your bride is waiting. God has a great gift and one day you will receive it if you believe and trust in His Son and what He said. And I hope that next week, whatever you find yourself doing on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, whether it's opening presents, whether it's eating food, take time. Five minutes, ten minutes. And acknowledge what that day means. Acknowledge that because that day exists and we get to celebrate now one day, we will have peace, true peace that surpasses all understanding and that will last for eternity. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for taking away the pain. Lord, while there is pain and suffering in this earth, 
Lord, we think of people around the world who are cold, who are hungry, who do not have the simple things we have now. Lord, we ask that you would comfort them. We ask that you would bring them people to help. And Lord, for us tonight, I pray that you would work on our hearts and and, and place in us the desire to pray and to acknowledge you this season. To know that we celebrate Christ being born in a manger because that meant that one day he would return and that we would finally be home. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your promises. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.